Hello and welcome back to The Long Short and Happy New Year to all of you from all of us at The Long Short. We look forward to bringing you more insights into the world of alternative investments over the coming year and more about that over the coming weeks. But first, let's introduce our first guest of the year. Regular listeners of The Long Short will have heard our conversations with fund managers from across the alternative investment industry, but we've had very few allocators speak to us until now. Edward Van Helderen has responsibility for managing one of the largest public plans in North America, the Public Sector Plan in Canada, and we are delighted to have him on to speak to us today. Edward covers everything from the Canadian pension model to the case for allocating to alternatives, as well as his view on digital assets and the liquidity challenges of managing pension plans. And as well as that, he is also the inaugural chair of AIMA's Global Investor Board, which launched last year and brings together a variety of allocators to facilitate knowledge sharing and positive dialogue with alternative investment managers. Edward, you are very welcome to The Long Short. Thank you very much. So you are the chief investment officer of one of Canada's largest pension plans. Would you say investing is something that you've always been interested in? And can you explain a little bit about the journey you've been on to to reach the heights of the role that you're in? Yes, certainly, Drew. Um, Interestingly enough, um, when I was around 14, 15 years old, uh, my parents had one of their best friends coming over regularly, and he was head of investments at uh, NN, a Dutch insurance company. And whenever he was over, he was talking about uh, his job, uh, the investments he was making, but also the, the rationale for making those investments. And I thought it was fascinating to listen to him why he was doing it, and, and you know, what was, uh, what was the role. And it was so different from what my father was doing because my father was a mathematics professor at, at the university, uh, which I always felt was very dry and boring. And then this guy came over to our place telling all these wonderful stories. So, yeah, by the age of 14, 15, I was actually um, intrigued by investments. So um, I decided to study uh, economics or, or more specifically um, mathematical finance in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, to prepare myself also for an investment role. But the journey to, uh, to the current role uh, is actually a journey with a lot of different steps. Um, and it almost feels like job hopping, but, but in all fairness, I think I learned every time when I was in a new job what I liked and what I didn't like. So my first 10 years, I worked for an investment bank uh, doing partly research, but also doing trading. And although I was really uh, fascinated by the trading, you know, the challenges that you face every single day, the one thing that bothered me was the short-term focus of, uh, of that activity. So after 10 years, I moved to the buy side and uh, started to work for commercial asset managers. Um, And I liked that, to be honest, much better than investment banking. But there there was still the same element of, you know, the short termism, always trying to beat that benchmark on a relatively short, uh, uh, in a short period of time and not have a very long term outlook on on the portfolio. So I think the major or the most important step I made was roughly 10 years ago when I joined APG in, uh, in Amsterdam, which is the Civil Workers Pension Plan, because there 
you know, the, the freedom of investments and the long-term focus was certainly there. And I actually felt that is what I really love to do, being able to think really long-term, you know, taking positions uh, in the portfolio long-term because I believe in the, the business case or I believe in the long-term trend and not too much bothered about short-term considerations like a benchmark or tracking hours, etc. So since then, I moved from APG to the University of California to the investment office there, and then roughly five years ago to PSP in, uh, in Montreal. And that was, to be honest, um, a decision I think was probably the best in my career because I really love you know, the environment of the Canadian markets and, and PSP in particular. So Edward, then, as you say, in your current role, uh, you have responsibility then for managing the investments of the Public Sector Pension Plan of Canada, or PSP for short. So who then or what is the PSP? Yeah. So PSP is indeed the Public Sector Pension uh, Plan, which uh, basically runs the pension assets for the Canadian government. There are four different pension plans run by the Canadian government, one for the public service, one for the Canadian forces, uh, the mountain police, and the reserves. But all four are basically managed as if it's one big pension plan. Um, And PSP is the only manager of those assets. It was established in uh, 1999, um, and to be honest, uh, in line with many other plans in in Canada, it was set up in the spirit of the Canadian model. Um, since then, it ha- it showed an enormous growth from literally zero in 2000 when we started, up to 230 billion Canadian dollars nowadays. So phenomenal growth over the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. And as you say, this is now a several hundred billion dollar pension plan. Uh, when we think about the size of this plan, uh, where would it feature in terms of the largest plans in North America, roughly? Yeah, so in a Canadian context, um, we would rank probably number four in terms of size. Uh, Clearly, CPPIB uh, and CDBQ are way bigger. But then there's the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan as probably the number three, and then we will be number four. But interestingly enough, um, because we are still a growing fund and uh, the plans are still open, the defined benefit plans, we do expect to be around 300 billion in the next seven to eight years. And that would certainly bring us up to a third position in the Canadian market. But in light of North American investors, I'm not sure what the position really is, but it is definitely among the larger ones. And, and how does PSP differ, uh, both in terms of in, in Canada and in other sort of uh, comparative plans, but also globally in terms of the model that you use? Yeah. So what I find interesting about PSP is, first of all, it works for uh, the Canadian government exclusively. It's actually by law that we are managing the uh, the pension assets uh, for the Canadian government. 
to me, there is a, a clear resemblance, uh, you know, with the job I had at the APG, which is also the Dutch investor for the public uh, sector. So there is a familiarity here that I see between APG and, uh, and PSP. But when I think about PSP, and in all fairness, when you, know, when you had asked me six years ago about PSP, um, I would have said to you, like, I don't know PSP. I've never heard of it. Um, but when I started to dive into PSP and what it was all about, I was really very surprised in a very positive way. Um, it has a very strong relationship with the government. Um, the pension plans, the defined benefit, uh, I should say, defined benefit pension plans are still open. In contrast to many other plans uh, around the world, the defined benefit plans are still there. They're still open and still growing. And I think that is actually very interesting because I firmly believe in that system. I firmly believe in the solidarity that's actually within, built in within defined benefit schemes. So I think it's quite important to maintain that, uh, that system. And for the Canadian government, it's actually very important because, you know, the compensation in general working for the Canadian government is not the highest, but at least they can show to their, their employees like, well, when you retire, you have a very solid pension plan that is waiting for you. The other interesting thing about it is that we only manage the, the pension liabilities post-2000. So all the pre-2000 liabilities are paid um, in a pay-as-you-go system. But it means if we only cover the post-2000 liabilities, it really means that our investment horizon is truly long-term. And that actually helps us in our specific investment strategies. For example, you know, we do have to, to care less about liquidity because we don't pay out anything yet in liabilities. We're still receiving a positive cash flow for the next eight to nine years. And even then, after that point, we, we are in a break-even position. But it means we don't require a lot of liquidity in the next decade which really helps us in, uh, in our investment strategy. And then, you know, we, we touched on it already a couple of times. Uh, it's set up in the spirit of the Canadian model, which basically means it's, it's very clear in terms of who is responsible for what, but also in terms of your investment strategy. In contrast to what I've seen before in my career, the Canadian model is very entrepreneurial. So it does allow pension plans to really build up new business models, even set up companies, as long as it's in the best interest of the beneficiaries. And that's very, very appealing. Uh, so, Edward, uh, just to clarify then, when you talk about the Canadian model, are you referencing the Maple Model 8? Yeah. So the Canadian model actually started with the, the reforms of the Ontario Pension Plan. Uh, so Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is actually the first one. And then a lot of others actually followed. The, the biggest eight pension plans in the Canadian market, we call the Maple 8. But they all adopt some form of the Canadian model, which is basically as three pillars. That's the governance, it's in-house in investments, and it's a large allocation to alternatives. 
Now they're not all the same, but they kind of use similar uh, approaches to their investment uh, strategy. And uh, so how would that distinguish then the, the model that is that you describe versus how things might be done elsewhere? You would obviously look at what others are doing. There is uh, obviously models in place here in the UK as well. And they're looking to copy the models, successful models yeah. like your Canadian model. Yeah, there are certainly different models uh, around. Um, so the Canadian model is one. Um, but we all know Yale University, the endowment model, which is, a, is a, a, another type of model. And the more traditional models um, that we used to have in the past. Um, I think if you just look at the, the three different pillars, in terms of governance, uh, it's quite interesting that you can distinguish a sponsor, a board, and uh, daily management. Um, they all three have their own specific responsibilities, but there's one overarching goal or objective, and that is to do everything that's in the best interest of the beneficiaries, of the pension uh, beneficiaries. Uh, and that sounds very straightforward, but actually it's not. Because I've seen very different models uh, in my career where interests were not aligned or, you know, where the different parts of the, the governance were not as professional as we see in the Canadian uh, market. For example, there are many pension plans with a board uh, where basically different stakeholders are part of the board, like the unions. And I'm not saying that unions, per definition, are not you know, um, capable of doing the job. But there's clearly a risk that, you know, people will enter the board with different agendas than what you would expect. Um, and in the Canadian model, it's very clear. Also, the board members are selected based on their careers, based on their expertise, and how they can add to the overall arching objective of generating the returns needed for the pension plan. Um, and I think that's very clear in the Canadian model, and it is very blurry at times in other parts of the world. So that's with, with regards to governance. Then in-house investments, um, you need to have the skill, actually, to do in-house management. And what you see in the Canadian model is, especially the Maple 8, they all have the size, they all have the skill <coughs> to move investments from external managers internally. And that not only brings a, a huge cost benefit, but it also builds up the internal expertise to be more innovative and to work on different strategies going forward. And then the third one is uh, a significant allocation to alternatives. What you see around the world is still a, a huge reliance on 60-40 models, where basically the strategic portfolio is driven by equity and bonds, and then just an add-on to alternatives with just a few percentage uh, points. In the Canadian model, the alternative investments is a very large part of the total fund, and therefore that, that really distinguishes the Canadian model from other models. I, I just want to go back to that liquidity point there and, and, and just sort of bring that into this point about uh, a greater allocation to alternatives because that is an extremely unusual situation to be in to have uh, almost a decade of no liquidity uh, 
concerns to worry about. And I'm sure many people, many CIOs are envious of that position that you're in there. So given if we look sort of at the global landscape and the issues that pension funds elsewhere in the world are having about uh, obviously aging populations in certain countries and more liabilities than than inflows, you guys seem to be in the opposite situation or, or at least have a significant buffer against this problem that others are facing, as well as that allowing you to have this much greater diversification into alternatives. Can you just talk about sort of what sort of an advantage that brings you and and, and just to take, you know, maybe last year as an example, given the, uh, the pretty horrid time that a lot of, you know, equities and fixed income had? Yeah, so I'm actually glad you bring this forward uh, because last year was a very good example. So, you know, when you look at last year where public markets really took a nosedive and with equities minus 20 percent and even fixed income coming down like 10, 15 percent, that would have hurt you in a traditional portfolio uh, of 60, 40. Now, when you start to add alternatives to the mix um, and you, have all, you can have all kind of arguments like, well, the valuation is, is, is biased, etc., but definitely the, the, the alternatives uh, did better than some of the public uh, markets. So therefore, if you really start to, to add alternatives to the mix, it really helps you in, uh, in diversifying the portfolio and also to basically mitigate the downside risk that is there if you only uh, rely on public markets. But in our case, uh, having no liquidity issues is actually an additional benefit. Because what happened uh, last year is that we saw the public markets really going down and uh, the private assets actually staying rather stable. But the end result was that the strategic mix was actually a bit out of whack. There was way more allocation to the privates than we had in mind in our strategic mix. But the question there was like, oh, should we adjust for this or can we let this just stay on for, for the time being? But knowing that we do not have any liquidity issues, we can actually accept that illiquidity in the private markets. So our point was like, we're going to keep it. And of course, we're going to monitor it very carefully, but we're not forced to do anything. We are not forced to sell the privates because there is a liquidity need uh, uh, for the fund. No, there isn't. And I think that is a very, very nice position to be in. So... I think, again, that that's uh, why I think PSP is, is in a very beneficial position compared to others. AMA's Global Investor Board was created to further strengthen AMA's engagement with the allocator community and better support our growing investor membership. AMA's Global Investor Board comprises of nearly 20 senior leaders at institutional investors from across the world, from Sydney to Toronto, California to Sweden, Abu Dhabi to Hong Kong, and beyond. Chaired by Edouard Van Gelderen, CIO at PSP Investments in Montreal, AMA's Global Investor Board provides educational insights on topics such as alignment of interests, GP and LP strategic relationships, ESG, and trends impacting asset allocation, all while advancing sound practice excellence for our members and the alternative investment industry. AIMA offers qualified institutional investors complimentary affiliate membership, granting allocators full access to AIMA due diligence questionnaires, operational sound practice guides, events, allocator-only peer groups, and more. 
full paid membership with the option to remain private is also available. To learn more about investor membership options or EMA's Global Investor Board work and their perspectives, please visit EMA.org. And dare I say it, Edward, it's somewhat, well, somewhat unique to what other pension plans are having to deal with. Yeah, because you talk about this liquidity issue. And certainly, because you, you, know, you don't have to go very far and hear about what has happened in the past year for 6040 portfolios. You had record precipitous falls in, in fixed income yeah. uh, and equity markets have had a terrible year. So yeah. can, just to clarify that point, you say you've no liquidity issues. You mean that you're not having to there's, – there's enough in your fund to be able to pay out beneficiaries, yes? Yeah, so you can – when you think about liquidity, you can think about three factors. Why do you need liquidity? Well, one is because you need to pay for the liabilities that you face. We don't have that issue. And we will not have that issue in the next coming years. Um, but the vast majority of pension plans do pay out more than they actually receive in contribution. So that's quite unique. But then the other two factors are basically, you know, your commitments that you've already done to, for example, private assets. So you commit yourself, let's say last year, this year, the general partner will come to you and say, oh, now I need the investment. So you need to come up with the liquidity for uh, the general partner. But we know our commitments. So we know what kind of liquidity is needed for that element. And then the third one is basically the liquidity you need for your margin calls. So if you use a lot of derivatives, then clearly your margin calls will require liquidity. Again, you could argue, well, you know the amount of the derivatives that you have in your funds, so you can calculate you know, what kind of liquidity is needed. But there is an element of uncertainty around this. The more market volatility there is, the more liquidity requirements you have. But at least you can manage that as well. So of the three factors, the, the very important one, the first one, paying out more in liabilities than you're receiving in contributions, with us, it's exactly the opposite. We still receive more in contributions than we actually right. pay out in, in pension liabilities. That's very helpful. Um, and and you've, you've mentioned it already, but it would be remiss of us not to have you uh, re- react to, to, to the view around alternative investments, given the, the title of this podcast. Um, and alternative investments have done reasonably well, certainly over the past year. Hedge funds and private credit have withstood that market turbulence better than most, we would argue. And the case for investing in private markets, you've already put that to us. So how do you then view the role of hedge funds and private credit in your portfolio? And what lessons then can investors take from the past year into how better to manage risk in their portfolio? Let me take one step back before answering uh, this specific question. Um, I've been always wondering about the outcome of ALM studies, because in all fairness, liability structures are different uh, per pension plan. And moreover, the, the risk tolerance definitely is different per pension plan. And yet, every time when I saw an ALM study, 
most of the time the outcome drifted towards a very standard mix of equity and bonds, always around the same percentages. Now, what we do is, is slightly different because we really dive into the structure of the, the liabilities and, uh, more importantly, the risk tolerance that our sponsor is giving us. And that's the, the Canadian government. And the risk tolerance statement is very clear about um, mitigating extreme events. So if you think about uh, investment returns as a normal distribution, then, yeah, you can think about the middle part of that distribution. But what will the portfolio do when you actually move to the tail of that distribution? And that's where alternatives come in. Because when we think about alternative investments, we think about a very broad set of uh, asset classes. So it includes real estate, infrastructure, natural resources, private equity, private credit, and hedge funds. So a very broad group of, of alternatives. But then we basically analyze what is the behavior of these specific uh, asset classes under different market uh, circumstances. How do they behave? Are they truly there to as a, as a return enhancement? Which, you know, you could argue private equity is in uh, comparison to public equities. Does it provide any, you know, liquidity if you need anything at all? But we don't. Is it really lowly correlated with uh, standard uh, asset classes? But maybe more importantly, what does it do when you move into an extreme event? So tail risk management. So we look at alternatives basically from that angle, like like what will the alternatives add to a standard mix of equity and bonds when we move to different parts of, of a distribution? And that's where the value of alternatives really starts to, uh, to show. And not just uh, over last year, we've seen that already like over the last decade. It is a very interesting element to a, uh, to a total fund because it allows you also to, to be honest, to take more risk in the more traditional asset classes, because that risk is mitigated by the alternatives from a total fund perspective. So for us, alternatives is a very solid building block of our total fund approach. And I'm, I'm sure that's going to stay that way. If you'll allow me, I just want to go back to something you said earlier, because I believe you described the the Canadian model as fostering something of a of an entrepreneurial spirit in the way you invest and obviously that's uh, connected to the uh, very uh, enviable liquidity situation you're in but th- that strikes me as, as very uh, not bizarre but just just interesting in the sense that it, it's it's not something you hear in connection to pension funds is uh, an entrepreneurial no. <laughs> or, or I mean, speaking from here in London, pension funds, when they're sort of connected with anything exciting, that's usually because something's gone wrong. So yeah. if we usually like yeah. to see our pensions very much not on the front lines or, or doing anything exciting. So could you just expand on that a bit and explain sort of the, the types of ventures that you might go into? It's, it's interesting, Drew, that you bring this up because um, I clearly had a long um, – you know history in the in the Dutch market, and as you as you probably know, there's a lot of discussions, like in the UK, about pensions and and also the risk taking around pensions and etc. Um, and I think there is this this idea that 
pensions should be almost like guaranteed. Um, but you can only guarantee a pension when, you know, basically your expected returns are relatively low. And that low return, if you cannot work uh, with higher contributions, that very low return is not going to give uh, retired people enough money to live on. Something has to give. And I think in general, there was always the feeling like, well, as long as there is solidarity within the pension plan, we can actually take more risk and generate longer term the returns that we need to keep pensions alive. And I'm, I'm puzzled, to be honest, with some of the discussions, especially in Europe, um, where a lot of focus is not so much on that return element, but is really about the risk element of not losing money. But we all know that is not going to generate enough returns. So what I like about the Canadian model is, like I said in the beginning, is uh, the solidarity that's still there in the system. You can take bigger risk if you know that you know one generation might be supported by another generation. And more importantly, where the group as, as a whole is responsible and not the individual. So in terms of defined benefits, um, collective schemes into individual defined contribution schemes. I think moving to an individual defined contribution scheme is not the way to go. I actually think the benefits of a collective defined benefit is still the, the superior model. But in order to do, so, to do so, you have to have a mindset that is willing to take risk and willing to take uh, long-term bets or think about long-term results. And that's what I like about the Canadian model. Um, and it comes back to the governance. If all the different stakeholders agree that in the end of the day, it's all about the benefits paying out to the beneficiaries, then you know you can take longer term bets uh, in the market. And you can be more entrepreneurial because that's how you generate the returns. So I totally agree with you, Drew. It's certainly not the mindset we see currently in Europe. But I'm very happy to see it still in, in Canada. And so I, I can't help but ask then, in, in the spirit of potentially venturing into more uh, exotic or, or uh, <laughs> areas with more movement than guilt, say, digital assets had a tricky year, uh, to say the yeah. least. Just to simply put it to you, sort of, what's your or view on this space? Uh, do you see any opportunities or, or value there? Is it something that a pension fund should be involved in? So digital assets are, are definitely part of our thinking process. Uh, we are currently exploring the landscape to get a better understanding of, of what makes sense or not. And, and I firmly believe that you know, the technology or blockchain technology is here to stay and it will find its way into many business applications going forward. Um, so therefore, I think it's very important for us to really focus on digital assets because it will be uh, a game changer. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of people used uh, basically digital assets or basically trading the coins to make an investment profit or to generate alpha and that is actually something I'm not particularly interested in. I don't believe there's any, any substance to justify that type of, uh, of strategy. 
but again, the technology is here to stay, and I'm sure it's going to change uh, business models going forward. But given the, the, the more recent events, uh, I think a lot of people have a lot of opinions, but not necessarily the appropriate insights. Um, and, you know, we're still on a journey to fully understand the potential and the impact of digital assets. Uh, and from that perspective, we as PSP are also looking into it and definitely not, you know, turning our back to digital assets as if it's just one big um, hoax or whatever terms used in the uh, in the public domain. I don't think it is. I think the technology is uh, is very interesting. Um, and another area, Edward, that has also witnessed a significant challenge, certainly over the past six months, has been ESG and sustainable investment. How do you think about ESG in the context of managing the risk in your portfolio um, and, and climate change? So first of all, I would like to, to say that ESG is, is not as new as, as we sometimes like to suggest, right? We touched on my career when I started uh, as an investment analyst for an investment bank in, in Amsterdam, and that was in the 90s. Uh, whenever we visited a company, we did ask questions related to their governance, related to their turnover, uh, sickness numbers, etc., and we did so not under the label of ESG, but because we really felt like these are important elements of a company that we need to know of when we make an investment judgment or not. Now we, we place it more formally under an ESG umbrella, and that's good because I don't think it will go away. Um, and I think there's a fundamental change. I think ESG, as you, you suggested as well, is, is no longer just a risk and an afterthought, ESG is actually an investment factor that we need to take into account in our investment uh, decisions, but it will also lead to investment opportunities. So it's not just like I've got an investment and then almost, you know, when I've made the decision, I start to think about ESG and think like, ah, oh, is there any ESG issue there? No, actually ESG is part of the investment process and it might actually open up opportunities going forward. And climate change in that respect is a very specific case. I think it's real. It requires a lot of investments. And the path to, to net zero is, is less clear than many people suggest. But it also offers a lot of opportunities, especially for long-term investors as PSB. Because if we get it right, if we got a, a good uh, um, sense of where this path to net zero will, will go to, then that could be the next competitive edge that we as a long-term investor, as an asset owner, can actually put in place. If you'll forgive the fairly abrupt segue, I, I just wanted to use our final few minutes just to touch upon uh, your other role, which is, of course, head of AIMA's investor outreach efforts. And, and just for any listeners that don't know, roughly a year ago, uh, Edward, along with several other institutional, global institutional investors, set up our Global Investor Board. So, Edward, could you just tell us a little bit more about how that's developed over the past year? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, the Global Investor Board is basically a think tank where different investors meet. And we're truly a global platform 
with participants from Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Middle East, Europe, and uh, North America. And we also have different investors uh, like pension plans, family offices, and sovereign wealth funds. Um, now, you could argue, like, gosh, there are many of those platforms around, so why is this one specific? Well, I think it is specific because the Global Investor Board is part of AMA, which places this board in the context of alternative investments. And I think that was missing. Allocators, institutional investors, and alternative managers can learn a lot from each other, uh, but can also work together to further professionalize the alternative market space. So given the impressive group that we formed over the last 12 months, um, I'm sure that looking forward, we can do a lot of good stuff here. And, and looking ahead then to, to this year, Edward, what, what's your plans then for the GIB? Yeah, so next year, um, there's only one, as I, I mentioned, where we are um, positioned. There's one area, um, and that is Latin America, that is still missing. So one of my personal ambitions is to get uh, an investor from Latin America joining the group. But more importantly, um, now that we are a established board, we can really start to, um, to basically continue our discussions, but also start to add value um, to the members of AMA and, and others. By means of the discussions, participating in AMA's research projects, uh, but also to attend or be part of AMA's multiple seminars around the world and basically show that we have a certain um, knowledge related to, to, to alternatives, not just from a GP perspective, but also from an allocator's perspective that we get, actually can share with the rest of the community, investment community. Well, Edward, this has been a really educational conversation for me because I, I admit I was not as aware of the Maple 8 model, which is an excellent name, by the way, uh, as aware of it as I should have been. So thank you so much for your time and, of course, uh, your leadership of GIB. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. So, Tom Drew, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to, uh, to do this with you. And that was a very insightful interview with Edward, and great to get insights from someone like him who has the responsibility to manage the investments for one of the largest pension plans globally. And it's really interesting to hear how much stock he holds in the value of alternative investments too, and the increasing role that he advocates for alternatives across that pension plan. And we are very grateful for Edward's leadership of our Global Investor Board, very much the engine room of a growing investor membership base within AMA. And for further insights into the work of this board, please go to AMA.org where you will find more information. And this information can also be available to you in the program notes. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.